Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Once upon a time, I taught high school English classes. I had high hopes of discussing Walt Whitman and acting out Shakespearean comedies, you know, of course, but quickly learned that not everyone shares my love of the written word. That didn't deter me, though, from sharing my love of poetry. But it did refocus my efforts as a teacher. I realized, okay, so this is not everyone's favorite class. This is a state requirement. What does everyone need to know when you can't choose everything? One of the things I chose was critical thinking, which extended to media literacy. Now, if I could go back in time, first I'd be a better teacher, but um, I'd mold those lessons to more real-world applications. I see now because I couldn't anticipate the world that would unfold at the feet of these high school students 20 years later. But I would have focused more on media literacy as a way to read and understand text, which is what my heart wanted anyway. When my kids were becoming aware of the world, they would say things like, I heard that we're not supposed to drink cow's milk. Or, you know, President Kennedy's murder was a conspiracy. And I was surprised that they, A, were interested in these kinds of things, and B, that they wanted to share these ideas. There's something about hearing shocking or surprising news that makes you first want to share it, not to discover if it's really true or not. As you can imagine, we've had many discussions in our home over the years about media literacy. Uh, We talk about it. How do you know something's true? How do you verify the news you read or hear? Who stands to profit from this story? Who shared it? I worry about this a lot. It's so much more than it was 20 years ago in ways I didn't see coming. I wonder if we can all keep up when it seems like we're set up to be deceived. And this is why I want to talk about media literacy. When was the last time you read a headline that made you feel a strong emotion, whether it was anger or surprise or happiness, and then later found out it wasn't true? How did you feel in that moment? Frustrated, maybe, or annoyed, or maybe just tired? There has always been an abundance of incorrect information on the internet, but it's not secret that in the past five years, it's become almost impossible to completely trust any information that you find online, whether it's something as egregious as a false headline or something as small as a misremembered statistic. How can we know what's true and what isn't when we're using the internet, when it all feels so completely out of our control? We often talk about increasing our media literacy, but what does that really mean? Is it even possible to be able to detect every time you encounter false information online? That's what we're diving into in this episode of the Lisa Show series on your life online. Today, I'll be talking to a cybersecurity expert and a media literacy professor to find out what we can do to take back control of how the media that we consume affects the way we think. But first, I sat down with my producer, McKay, to ask him about his personal experience with misinformation online. I didn't think a lot about the media I consumed until, and I think a lot of people are this way, until 2020. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, at least maybe my age, I'm kind of millennial, Gen Z, cusp age group. But um, when 2020 hit, it was kind of a drastic kind of punch in the face for me because I think like news sites come and go and and but but what was really difficult and and hard for me in that time was 
like my family and friends. That was the misinformation that um, like cut the deepest, I think, especially when I had in 2020 with, I mean, not that anyone needs a recap on what happened in 2020, but especially with kind of the medical news that was circulating and it seemed like everyone was getting news from a different source and saying this Mm -hmm. about COVID and this about COVID. I have my own kind of long-term illnesses that I'm dealing with. And to have some family members like look me dead in the virtual Facebook eyes and and say things that I just knew weren't, weren't true based on my lived life experience um, was hard. And and that, um, I think, was, was kind of what brought to me like, like misinformation isn't so much about... I mean, it, a key facet of it is finding the right sites. But sure. even more than that was navigating kind of interpersonal relationships yeah. because... Like, I, I blocked a couple relatives, I unfriended some people, I muted some people, but, like, over time, it's like, I, I can't just block all my family, you know? Like, like I'm, some of them maybe, you know, maybe the ones a little bit more on the periphery that have more extreme views, but a lot of them disagree with me pretty diametrically on some topics, and but I still want to maintain those relationships. Yeah. But that's where the misinformation is kind of leaking through, and that's where it hurts. And I think what I'm still learning and what was most revelatory about this 2020 period is that when it comes to family and friends... I have to be skeptical, but I can't just be filing things into mental cabinets of, you know, this is true, this is false. Mm -hmm. Because even if something's false, I, but it's coming from someone I love, like, I can't just dismiss them the way I might dismiss, you know, a a newspaper that is, is, um, publishing false information. Like, I, I, um... it's worth it, at least for some family members, you know, maybe not. It's different for everybody's situations, but it's worth it for me to to have to figure out, like, why would they publish something like this rather than just writing them off as, like, oh, they're just lying on purpose. Yeah, it's a different game. Yeah, because most people aren't lying on purpose. I mean, some people are, but most people are just trying their best to make sense of what's going on. I, I mean, especially in the last three years when it seems like everything... I say the last three years, I don't know, life has always been crazy, but it just feels like it's around this unique period of media circus yeah, and does. misinformation and social media and algorithms and everything. It's just in this confluence of trying to make us think certain things. And so, um, yeah, that's what's complicated is everyone's just trying their best. Um, and sometimes that trying their best is incredibly hurtful and, and unsafe. So um, that... I think, yeah, is kind of a big part of what drove me then, starting then to to think almost constantly about, like, what am I accepting in? What am I consuming? What is the—I'm on social media way too much. I'm sure, I mean, other people are that way too. But I, I feel like I'm on it all day. And if I am going to be on it all day, you know, what is it that I'm just taking at face value? And what is it that I'm digging deeper into? And why is that the way that it is? The way McKay describes his experience makes sense to me. While news outlets come and go, it's often the conversations with our friends and family that affects us most profoundly. I talked to cybersecurity expert Amanda Hughes about how these connections spread misinformation so easily. So misinformation is is kind of an interesting phenomenon because a lot of times the misinformation is not actually... intended to be misinformation, to be um, incorrect information. Often it's people that are sending messages along that they feel are true or seem to be true based on their experience. But 
perhaps they're not when you're considering them from a different perspective. Um, so there's kind of a difference between misinformation, which is usually not intentionally, but and then there's also disinformation where people are purposely trying to inject false information to get people to do particular things or be upset about particular types of things. I told Amanda about a time when a close friend warned me about an impending lockdown in my city due to COVID that never actually happened. I asked her how she would categorize a mistake like that. I would probably categorize that as misinformation um, because it ultimately ended up not being true, but it was it was part of people trying to make sense of a very uncertain time. There wasn't a lot of information about what was actually going to happen because we didn't really know. Um, so people were just trying to kind of make sense and prepare, and, and in doing so, they were sharing information that perhaps was not correct, and, and but time kind of showed that it was incorrect, but did, it felt maybe true to them in that situation. The hardest part of encountering misinformation for me is when it's from a close friend or family and when I know it will actually harm people. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had about misinformation or disinformation that just ends awkwardly. Like, let's just agree to disagree. Like where we both look at each other and we know we need to end the conversation because it's not going to go anywhere. Where one person says, well, I read this and it was a reputable study. And I will return with, well, I read this and talked to this person and it was reputable and and it's been verified and, and we can feel ourselves getting really defensive, and then we drop it. When you feel like you're really right and the other person is really wrong and you care about them, and all you really want them to do is to read what you've read and to come to know what you have, you you inevitably meet at an impasse. But I can tell that they feel the same way I do, that they're not intentionally spreading misinformation any more than I am. And that intention goes a long way. And if we're all trying our best though, and we end up sharing false information, then that begs the question, how does this happen? Shouldn't we notice when a shared article or statistic is verifiably false? I asked Julia Smith, a professor and author about media literacy, why this happens so easily. You know, it was almost easier years ago when we had fewer options, right? And now we have thousands of options if we want to get our news. And research tells us that we tend to choose sources that confirm what we already feel and believe. So because we have so many options now, we are living in these filter bubbles where we very rarely hear any viewpoints that are different from what we already believe and think and feel. So it's mm-hmm. it's more of a challenge now to be informed than ever before because we're in this information glut, right? There's right. so much information out there that it's almost impossible to figure out what's real, meaningful, valid, and true. So it's, it's a, more of a challenge now than it ever has been, and it requires work on our part, sadly. What Julie explained brings to mind two concepts, and she actually mentioned the first one, filter bubbles. Filter bubbles are a phenomenon that happens on social media where, let's say, for example, you're using Facebook. You're scrolling along, and when you see an article that says something good about a political candidate that you like, so you give the article a like and leave a comment. This then tells Facebook, hey, I want to see more articles like this, and so on and so on until the only articles that you see on Facebook are headlines that support your current point of view. 
And with, as some studies say, 70% of us getting most of our news from social media, this means that most of us are only seeing news that supports our current way of thinking. We have no opportunities to learn and grow. The second concept that's very connected to filter bubbles is the idea of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias says that we're more likely to believe something that confirms what we already believe than something that challenges our point of view. So if you combine our confirmation bias with social media filter bubbles, we end up trapped in a cycle of being told that everything we believe is right and everything anyone else believes is wrong. Julie explained a little bit more how this cycle works. And there's more of a challenge now than ever, I think, because we, you and I, have the capability to create anything that looks as legitimate as something from the New York Times. So Mm -hmm. the, the design capabilities through social media and all the apps and software, et cetera, make it so easy for us to look like, to create something that looks legitimate. And the amount of information makes it difficult to sift through for, you know, the valid nuggets of information. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, if we really like the message, we're less likely to check it for authenticity. Really? Yes. So if, um, if, for example, you lean politically one way or the other, Mm -hmm. if you see a message about a candidate that you don't particularly like, that does not show that candidate in a favorable light, Mm -hmm. research says that you will probably share that without checking because you like the message. And in our social media circles, which you mentioned before, we tend to congregate with people who think, feel, believe, and vote the way that we do. So they're less likely to check it for authenticity also. So that's how, quote unquote, fake news tends to go viral because we're just really not checking to see if it's accurate or not. When I hear Julie describing this cycle, I can already think of a million times this has happened in the last few months and years. McKay also described how it feels to be in a filter bubble. So I grew up on kind of one far end of the political spectrum. And as I came into adulthood and um, started to build my own ideas, and especially with all the events of the last few years, it's kind of swung me all the way to the far other end of the political spectrum. And what I'm finding recently is that, like, growing up, as I kind of started to shift my ideas and start to move along the political spectrum, I was realizing, oh, like, I believe this, not because I necessarily have found it to be true, but because, like, I'm continually confirmed in that belief. And so I thought, okay, I don't believe this anymore because I can see that evidence points to the direction. And I kind of crept my way along Mm -hmm. the spectrum to a different point of view. And now I'm finding, maybe not to the same extent, that I've now especially in the depths of like mental illness and just the difficulties of the pandemic and doom scrolling, it's sometimes it feels so good to just scroll and just have a bunch of people validate you for what you believe, you know? It feels good to just feel less alone and to have a bunch of people posting dumb memes and tweets and whatever. I know, there is something soothing about Just help you feel like, oh yeah, other people think this too. But also at the same time, it, it... it's, it is a filter bubble, right? The algorithm sees me interacting with those things and then it feeds them back to me over and over again and I'm more likely to like and more likely to retweet. And so I'm finding that I've once again, I've insulated myself in this corner of belief where I'm not engaging enough with people who disagree with me. Um, and I do feel pretty confident in where I stand politically and I don't think it, it's, again, a matter of swinging all the way back the other way. But I do think that what I'm realizing more and more is that I need to, keep 
like allowing myself a little bit out of my comfort zone. Like if you're not constantly testing the edges of your belief system, um, you'll start believing things just because you already believe them and not because you understand why you believe them and because you have evidence for believing them. It can all feel so overwhelming. So often I hear talk of the algorithm this and the algorithm that. It feels like social media algorithms have all of the control. So what can we do? If there's one thing I want to impress upon you in this episode and in this series, it's that this isn't hopeless. We might not be able to completely overhaul the media and social platforms, but we can become the kinds of media consumers that can sift through all the complicated information online to form educated and empathetic opinions. I asked Julia what being media literate looks like to her in real life. Constantly asking questions. You know, it's it's not bashing of the media, although there are parts of the media that are certainly worth bashing, right? But the average American now spends between 11 and 11 and a half hours a day with electronic mass media. So we're not saying that the media are bad at all. What we're saying is if we're spending this much time with something, we should be talking about it more. We should be asking questions. So a media literate person, no matter what the message is, will typically ask, who's the sender of the message? What's their motive or intent? What tips and tricks are they using to get their point across? Who profits from the message? What information is being left out? How could someone else interpret this message differently than me? So we want to be constantly asking questions, which really leads to critical thinking, which is such Mm -hmm. a, a buzz phrase now. I love Julia's advice. And what I think we need to keep in mind as we try to do these things is that it takes practice. We won't be perfect fact checkers from the start, but we'll get better at understanding what is being said to us and why. McKay and I talked about how we, the normal people who aren't necessarily experts on the subject, can start practicing media literacy right now. What I found is that, especially in the last, like, even in the last like few months, there are news outlets that I had come to kind of rely on. I was listening to their podcasts, I was subscribing to their newsletter, whatever, that all of a sudden, it probably wasn't a surprise to some people, but for me, I was kind of like, whoa. Um, and this is probably paired with my ever-developing political beliefs, but like started publishing things that were just like really gross. Hmm. Gross, like hurtful to groups of people that hmm. I hold dear. Um, in a way that didn't feel like it upheld like journalistic integrity and things like that. And, and so what I'm realizing is that it's really hard to nail down like, oh, watch out for like this specific word in a headline. Right. Or like if you see this kind of writing. And there are people that have good tips about that. I'm not an expert on that sort of thing. So, you know, there's resources out there on how to identify, you know, biased writing. But what I found, especially on social media, mm-hmm. Um, I get most of my news through Twitter. I know a lot of people are moving off of Twitter nowadays. A lot of people get stuff through Facebook, Instagram, wherever. Like 95% of the time, all it really takes is like 60 seconds more of engagement with like a piece of information to be able to find out if it's something reliable or not. Uh, I, it's, it's just like that one extra little oomph of effort and like digging in. It's just clicking to open the article and reading a little bit. You don't have to read the whole thing. Or clicking on the author's name and seeing who their sponsoring company is. Or, you know, just that little, that one extra step. 90% of the time will clarify to you if something is something that you can depend on or if this is information that's just meant to elicit a, a specific reaction or to make money for somebody, you know. Again, it's easier said than done, but that's been kind of my guiding principle is trying to work hard to at 
not just take that extra step um, when it's something I'm angry at. Right. You know? In the heat of the moment. Well, and because it's like I, I, I've noticed this a lot with myself recently too, is that like I, I'm super quick to do my most investigative research and my smartest fact checking when it's someone I'm trying to disprove yeah. because I already don't like them, you know, <laughs> because they've got some, you know, emoji in their Twitter handle and I'm like, oh, this is someone I don't like. So let me go and, you know, dig into them. And, and it, it's like, I really have to pull teeth to get myself to do that for someone that, you know, at least superficially is on my side, whatever that means. So that that's kind of the challenge. It's that confirmation bias. It's so easy to accept things that validate us, but um, get, taking that extra step for, I mean, ideally everybody, but at the yeah. very least information that you're allowing to affect your worldview, if you do that for all of that, then that I think most of the time is going to help you build a much more fact-based perspective on the world. This feels so simple and so doable. But if there's anything I've learned as a parent, it's that sometimes the simplest things are the easiest to forget to do. Cybersecurity expert Amanda also gave me advice for how to react when we encounter a particularly significant piece of information online. A lot of times we want those things to be true or, or they, they strike a chord with us. So we feel they make us angry or upset or, or maybe really excited about something. And so we want to share it with, with those around us. And, and that's where we perhaps sometimes share something without thinking about it. And that's, that's one of the ways of combating misinformation is when something does kind of strike a chord with you, that may be a sign for you to step back and think, is this information correct? Maybe I should check it out a little bit before I just hit that share button. I, I would be lying if I said it was easy. I mean, it's a difficult thing to do to kind of regulate those types of emotions. I know for me, I'm just very, very careful about what I'll share. So I kind of, before I share something, I'm, I'm like, mm, is this really something I want to show up on my feed as something that I have shared and something that I'm because when you're sharing something, you're kind of endorsing it in a way. I don't know that my process is necessarily scientific, but I just, my personal process is when I see something that I kind of wonder about, um, oftentimes I can tell right away if I feel like it hasn't jived with some of the other things that I've been reading. Um, I try to kind of keep to a, a few sources that I think are good sources, but I think those vary depending on who you are and what kinds of where you live and what news organizations you have and what you trust. Um, and and uh, so I can't say what those sources should be because I think it kind of depends on who you are. Mm -hmm. um, I know I certainly, for like the coronavirus, look a lot to kind of my local health organizations for telling me what's going on in my local area because I know they're going to have much more accurate information than somebody that's in a different state or in a different location in the world. Um, so I kind of regulate, you know, are they, is the information that's being stated in this post, is it congruent with the things that I've been seeing? What's consistent between all the people we've talked to in this episode is that regardless of their exact processes for fact-checking information, what's important is that they're trying. 
It's hard to give exact advice when a dependable news outlet might change all of a sudden to be less factual and vice versa. And the social media platforms we spend our time on are shifting and changing even as we speak. But what can stay constant through it all can be the way that we take a step back, recognize how information is affecting our emotions, and then take a couple extra steps to find out if that information is based in fact or not. You know, with my kids, I think I still want to talk about media literacy. I like to lead with all of those questions. Who's profiting from this? How do you know it's true? What is this based on? How big was the survey? How uh, large and long-lasting was the, the research? How many people were involved? Can it be verified? You know, all those kinds of questions. And I like to remind them about the algorithm all the time. They make fun of me for it. And online spaces that I like to go to get reliable, measured, vetted information. And they still really like to tease me by saying outrageous claims as if they believe them. And I still fall for it and I still correct them just in case because I take it way more seriously than they do. And whether it's a conversation with our kids or with coworkers or even with complete stranger, this whole process of becoming smarter media consumers will become easier if we work together. Here's how Julia suggested we work as a community to stop the spread of misinformation. This is going to sound weird, but if someone is sharing false information in your social media channels, mm -hmm. don't be afraid to call them out. Maybe not publicly, but um, you know, send a direct message or something and say, "Hey, you know, you might want to double check the source on this," just so that people know someone is paying attention. Hmm. And I think I think a lot of times people are afraid to call out others that they know are sharing false information. Instead, we just get really frustrated, right? Right. But I, but I think that if we all start sharing tips and tricks on how to determine what's real online, maybe we can kind of help each other move past this automatic sharing of information just because we like it or we think it's interesting, even though it might not be accurate. That point that what's interesting isn't necessarily accurate is exactly what I think we need to keep in mind. While many things in life and society are subjective, other things are not. There are undeniable truths that lay at the foundation of it all. We each have individual and unconditional worth, and we have to work together to value and protect that in each other. And while news outlets and social media platforms will come and go, our commitment to each other and to spreading the truth that will serve us as a community can remain constant through it all. Like we heard at the beginning of the episode, the misinformation that affects us the most is what comes from our family and friends. And I've unfortunately seen it really tear apart a lot of relationships. We really need to give each other grace and give each other the benefit of the doubt that we're really trying our hardest. And that's gonna require a lot of patience and better conversations. When we come a little bit more equipped to understand each other and to see another point of view, it helps us to create a stronger community. We know that we don't need to agree on everything, to love each other, to find value in each other, but we need to practice that. Uh, we can't let the algorithm mindlessly feed us information. We have to be more proactive about where we find it and how we control it. And I really do think that we can have more an effect on what we see and how we interact with others than then we've just let ourselves as a society just sort of fall into certain habits. 
And ultimately, we really can be smarter than any algorithm because only we can really understand ourselves, our emotions, and give that kind of grace to each other. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. The show is hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by McKay Menden and Becca Hurley with help from Tabitha Freitas, Michael Combs, Avery Stonely, and Victoria Rymington with music and post-production by Josh Fouts and Gracie Davis. Make sure you check out the Lisa Show Book Club. Every week, Lisa sits down with a guest to talk about a different section of Sherry Turkle's Alone Together. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or watch it on YouTube.